Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times. That was John and I'm Griselda. And on this week's episode, we're going to be talking about why dystopian fiction is booming again and what exactly it says about the world we live in. We'll also hear from the artist Comrade Shawcross. He finds beauty in machines and his works pay homage to inventors, mathematicians and scientific pioneers. Oh my God, welcome to the Dystopian Podcast. And my mug of tea has the word workday, customer 1309 on it. Yeah, it looks like a sort of standard issue prison mug. It's been a very odd It's been a strange week. Yeah, our offices are in London Bridge pretty much, just around the corner from where the terrorist attack happened. All the roads are cordoned off around where we work. So pretty Um, bleak. And we're also just recording this before the general election takes place. We live in pretty strange times. I think everyone's agreed. So we decided this week to kind of tackle this head on, to think about the times we live in and how how our times are reflected in the kind of art and the kind of books that we're consuming, what we're watching on TV and what all of this stuff says about our world. When we kind of put the feelers out to people to come into the podcast dystopian fiction is at the top of people's minds and also The Handmaid's Tale is kind of dominating most people's chat about TV at the moment. It's a Hulu original adaptation of Margaret Atwood's 1985 novel The Handmaid's Tale starring Elizabeth Moss. John, you've been watching it along with everyone else on both sides of the Atlantic. What did you make of it? Yeah, I think it's absolutely brilliant. And um, Elizabeth Moss of Mad Men fame, she's great. Yeah, she plays Offred, which sounds like a nice sort of Anglo-Saxon name, but actually means of Fred, so her commander, because she is, of course, one of the handmaids who is owned by her commander for kind of reproductive purposes in the book and in this adaptation. The really good thing I like about this adaptation is it kind of cuts back and forth to from the the present day in Gilead, this, this sort of place that used to be New England and is now this sort of like a police state, basically, theocracy, back to the a sort of New York that we that we recognise. Yeah, sales of the book have soared, haven't they, since the TV adaptation's come out? Yeah, and even before then, actually, dystopian fiction has been on the rise. So When Trump became president, George Orwell's 1984 went to the top of the Amazon bestseller list. Yeah, it was when Kellyanne Conway talked about alternative facts and this sort of really struck a chord, I think, with people who... Some people who sort of heard of 1984 but not necessarily read it, this idea of newspeak, of fact and truth being kind of not very important anymore, the idea of the state controlling your language and controlling your mind is very kind of sinister and rings true I think. Yeah and all over again we're reading kind of dystopian works finding deep deep meanings about the kind of world we live in today. Sinister parallels. There are two books which kind of stand out for me one's called American War by Omar El Akkad and the other is The Book of Joan by Lydia Yuknovich. What's interesting is both of these authors kind of don't really see their works as dystopian pieces of fiction 
Elakad said, I think of it as a recasting of history. Yuknovich actually said, I built a world that is only a small distance from our present tense, which is uh, kind of semi-alarming, right? Yeah, it's the idea that it's about the present and it's about the near future and how far are we from these things actually happening. A book I read recently is Naomi Alderman's The Power, which is shortlisted for the, the Bailey's Prize, which is going to be announced this week. Yeah, you love that. Um, yeah, so in, in this book, it's a sort of like feminist thriller, I think it's been called. Um, women have the power to electrocute. Um, some of them behave pretty badly, as some men do in the real world. And so she's been asked, is this a dystopia? And Naomi Alderman, the author, has said, if you think this is a dystopia we are now living in a dystopia. Nothing that these women do, men don't do now. Ugh, so such gloomy times, but there must be a reason why we kind of like reading this stuff. Yeah, it's interesting to think that we're turning to these things in such gloomy times. So we will be putting some of these questions to Helen Lewis, who is the deputy editor of The New Statesman. And the literary journalist Susie Fay is also joining us. She reviews fiction, including fiction for young adults, for the Financial Times. So Susie, Helen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So to start, we just wanted to ask you what dystopian fiction actually means for you and how, for example, it might differ from post-apocalyptic works. I think dystopian fiction, it can't just be a negative view of something or people having a bad time. To me, it's set in a time, probably in the near future, where there are structures in place that oppress people. Post-apocalyptic often means that there's been a, a natural disaster and maybe that could lead to dystopia because you mm. get a very repressive government. I mean, I really look at 1984 as the classic where there are structures and systems in place that oppress people. Yeah, I think you take the words of Radiohead's just, yeah, you have to do it to yourself, and that's why it really hurts. <laughs> and there was a really good article in The New Yorker by Jill Lepore about dystopian fiction. She gave a definition which I thought was really useful, which is that it has to be anti-utopian, so a utopia turned upside down, a world in which people tried to build a republic of perfection only to find out they created a republic of misery. And I think that's a useful definition. So something like Mad Max Fury Road, for example, is a world with water shortages, but what makes it dystopian is the fact that some people have therefore commandeered what limited water there is and built as, as you say a structure of oppression around that it has to be either the world has ended because of stuff that we've done or there has to be human agency involved so it's a kind of corruption of power it is, it the is the flip, literally the flip side of utopia isn't it because that's where the word comes from and utopia is is a no place a place that doesn't exist so another definition of dystopia is it might be in a parallel universe not quite in our universe so people might have tails and horns and things like that one of the interesting things about the history of dystopian fiction is that it often arose from a kind of quest towards utopias so there's a very famous socialist utopia from the 1880s in which a man falls asleep and he wakes up it's called london backwards by Edward Bellamy and a man wakes up in a socialist paradise and that inspired a lot of anti-socialist dystopias. H.G. Uh, Wells wrote a lot of utopias and then gave up basically because of the rise of, of Hitler and Nazism saying like this world is kind I of too... I think Aldous Huxley was actually responding to H.G. Wells wasn't he? When he was writing Brave New World he was kind of saying look the, this is the this sort of paradox at the heart of utopia itself that it can go dystopian. I 
And who would want to live in Plato's Republic? You know, he didn't like <laughs> poets. And that, in a way, is the first utopia. Yeah, and I think communism also influenced that as well, because lots of, in order to have a utopia, you sort of have to make everybody do utopia, right? It doesn't it necessarily involves a certain amount of conformity and order. Mm. Yeah, and it's the uh, idea of, like, whose utopia is it? Is yeah, it utopia exactly. for everybody? And that's what you think, exactly with Brave New World, you know, it's probably working out pretty well for the people at the top of that mm. society. For them, that is a utopia, probably. And Helen, it's interesting you mentioned the um, Jill Lepore piece in The New Yorker, which I urge anyone to read. Um, it came out a few weeks ago. And it kind of talks about the cycles of fashion for utopian fiction and dystopian fiction. And now we're very much in a kind of, there's very much a trend for loads and loads of dystopian works of fiction coming out. In the article, she highlights the early 2000s in America when there was a real mood of optimism there and utopia was a thing people really believed in and she um, talks about Barack Obama's Yes We Can speech of 2008 but obviously we're in a totally different period now linking back into what you were just saying so now we're in a, in a kind of real boom of dystopian fiction is our politicians kind of solely to blame for this? No, I mean, I think lots of things are to blame for this. Climate change, for example, has driven a huge amount of dystopian fiction because the lack of resources and a kind of world that's dwindling. Barack Obama's 2008 victory speech, you know, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. You yeah. won't find many people advancing that thesis today. I think many more people feel, you know, nation states are kind of putting up borders and walls. Everyone is now in a state of, like, let's hold on to everything we've got as the kind of the tide goes back out again. And I think that's why you see a lot of dystopian fiction now. It's a reflection of fears, and often writers are deciding to tackle something because it's a big issue. This chimes with what's going on, particularly in America at the moment, with Trump. And I wondered, I mean, do you see 1984 as the one that people have been talking about because it's had this great resurgence recently? Our post-truth era, do you see parallels there with the, the kind of world that Orwell is depicting? A lot of these books, you, you look at them especially if they're written quite a while ago and they're looking at now, it's quite funny. So Mary Shelley's The Last Man. I mean, everybody goes everywhere in a hot air balloon because that's the, <laughs> the most amazing thing that they can Sounds possibly think quaint. of. Yeah. And then you look at something like Blade Runner, Ridley Scott, there's no internet. He kind of goes um, into like some sort of weird dial-up phone, doesn't he, at the back of the bar? Yes. Yeah. It's always interesting looking at things from that far back, but 1984 was really astonishingly... Prescient sort of prescient, in yeah. so many I think it's ways. the surveillance stuff that stands out yes. still, doesn't it? The idea that everybody has a kind of spy in their home and everybody can be watched with that kind of panopticon sense of that, I think, is is what's interesting there. Also, surely, his description of doublespeak. Yes. You know, that's yes. kind of tailor-made for Trump. The ability speak. and requirement to speak, believe in yeah. two contradictory things yeah. at the same time. I mean... Is it, though? Because I'm not sure Trump really does use doublespeak. I think he just uses singlespeak. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? I think he's he's been very explicit about what he wants to do. I think probably more I buy the thesis of it being post-truth in the sense of, you know, you don't really know what's real. And actually, a lot of what Russian state propaganda is about trying to destabilise the idea that you can trust anybody, that there is any kind of objective reality we can all aspire to. Everything's just sort of kind of up for grabs. I think yeah. that feels very modern. Yeah, Experts I mean, Orwell are a waste says of time. ignorance is strength, exactly, as the kind of anti-science, anti-reason, anti-expert. Alternative fact. Alternative yeah, fact was the Kellyanne Conway. Is five. Yeah, mm. I think there is something kind of there's something scary in that the sense that science is not something that we can trust. So Orwell says, science in the old sense had almost ceased to exist. In Newspeak, there is no word for science. He didn't foresee the amount of voluntary surveillance that we go in for now, that you might actually want to have your every move broadcast and recorded. Yeah, I think Stuart Lee called Twitter something like a crowdfunded Stasi or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it is the one that people sort of sign up for themselves. 
And the other dystopian world that we've been thinking about a lot with the recent TV adaptation is Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, there's lots to talk about there. What, what do you guys think? I think the really terrible thing is watching The Handmaid's Tale is that there are places where bits of that are true. We ran a piece on on New Statesman by one of our writers about the fact that, you know, commercialised surrogacy is a fact in India and women are kind of basically put in farms in order to kind of safeguard their goods. Yeah, I mean, Um, I think Margaret Atwood herself said that nothing in the book has not at some point in time happened. It's not fantasy, actually. It's it's history. Yeah. It came out in 1985, and I couldn't help wondering whether she started to write it in the run-up to 1984. You know, people thinking, how much of what all said is going to happen this year? But so many dystopias are concerned with children and with and therefore with women. Fertility, yeah. Because, you know, Children of Men, which is one of my favourite and absolutely incredible film, is about the fact that, you know, there have been no children born for 20 years, I think, at this time, that it starts with the young man alive dying not only do you get the real dystopia from the fact that it is the absence of hope right children represent hope and the future and an idea that everything is there's a point to doing something right that something comes after but also that film is also incredibly prescient the bit where they go through the fuji camp and you see some some things that very reminiscent of guantanamo but also just herds of people waiting in no idea where they're going to be taken those could be images from the from the news claire morale's just written a novel i think it came out last year called when the floods came and so that is that idea you know and as we're speaking practically in the midst of a huge rainstorm that is the idea that the (laughs) waters are going to rise but she also brings in this idea that rapidly declining birthright and the kind of arranged marriage system starting again trying to make the very most of young people's fertility. Susie what other themes have been emerging in the kind of current crop of dystopian fiction? There's a fundamental question. I mean, if times are bad, why are we reading dystopian fiction? Surely we should be reading utopian fiction. And certainly in YA, young adult, there's always a measure of hope. People often seem to be having duels and fights. They're often magical. The magic quality, I suppose, is reassuring to teenagers reading that that they've got something within themselves. There's some quality that will help them shine through breakthrough so the other side of dystopia is the ultimate hopefulness of it you know which isn't perhaps isn't in that many adult dystopian novels so the hunger games was obviously a huge hit with young adults what else has been been coming up well the thing about the hunger games and the thing about publishing is that get a lot of me too right (laughs) everything's me too but you know for the reasons for it being a success in the first place are obviously it came at a certain moment, but then everybody piles in and does a Me Too. And if you look at all the books that have even Hunger Games type covers, and they are all about fighting and yeah, Divergent. I, mean, I, I felt was a Divergent. bit of a, of a kind of Hunger Games yeah, tribute act. It's done incredibly well. The novel that I was talking about earlier, Showstopper by Hayley Barker, that's set in a in a circus, and the children, and the eerie thing here, they are. They are all non-white, the children in the circus, and they they do more and more and more death-defying stunts until they die. And people go to watch, watch children die. And I think... This is Hunger Games. It's sort of going through various different cycles, isn't it? That's right. I mean, last night I saw a play that was all about, um, called Killology at the Royal Court, which is all about someone develops essentially a video game in which you can kind of torture people. And I thought, well, that actually doesn't ring true to me because most people aren't evil and sadistic, right? And actually what dystopias try to unpick is how 
good people or neutral people can end up participating in a really, really oppressive system. And I think Hunger Games is a really good example of that because you watch Hunger Games and you think how unbelievably horrible it is to have the capital where people are dressed in these amazing Alexander McQueen outfits and <laughs> taking potions so that they can vomit up stuff so they can eat more like a kind of old style Roman banquet while these people are living in these districts and they have nothing and they're mining minerals. And then you go, oh, no, wait. That's this world. That is this world. That is yeah. us having a three pound fifty chai latte while a child in you know Africa is working in a mine and somebody in a factory in China is building our iPhone. Another thing that I think is a hallmark of dystopias is about complicity and about unpicking how you can become complicit in a system like that. Because there's a kind of slippage that happens, isn't there? There's this idea of the new normal and something that is once unthinkable, and we're seeing it at the moment. I mean, the news cycle is is a kind of dystopian arc, something that you think one one week is kind of not possible the next week is, is suddenly the reality is the new normal i saw um something i thought was quite interesting which was there were some women in in texas a few months ago protesting some anti-abortion legislation in the senate and they came into the room dressed as handmaids with these white sort of blinkered bonnets and, and these red gowns and it was this amazing image that was kind of circulating on like Twitter. they were on the tv show yeah, exactly. As like in the, in the book and the TV show, on the Women's March, there was this very popular placard that said, "Make Margaret Atwood history again." <laughs> and it's this idea that this is real, this is happening. But that's very worrying because the, one of the other things that the climate out of which Handmaid's Tale arose, if you go back to the book, I'm not sure how much they'll pick it up in the uh, TV series, is, is kind of the anti-porn feminism of uh, in the 1970s and, and the backlash to second-wave feminism. I think you feel that again with something like you know the terror attacks in in Manchester. You know, this is a, an expression of somebody who hates the idea of particularly young women, you know, young gay people having fun, right? That seems decadent. Every time you move forward, there is a backlash. And the other thing that I find very worrying as well is, and, and I think it's unpicked more in the TV version of The Handmaid's Tale, is that bad people will never let a crisis go to waste. I think there are a lot of people in America who are really worried, not just about the possibility of a, a terror attack in America, but also about what Donald Trump would do in the circumstances of it. What, what kind of opportunists. Exactly, what what he would see that as an excuse to do. And I think that's something that Hamay's Tell unpicks really well, is that declining fertility becomes an excuse to re-invoke all these kind of religious tributes, because actually you then see um, babies as this precious resource. I mean, it's interesting because... The Handmaid's Tale kind of forces us to consider the unthinkable consequences of misogyny on such a huge national scale. And there was a lot of anger, not only in Margaret Atwood's time when she was writing this, but also earlier this month, or in, in early May rather, a Trump-backed healthcare bill classified rape and pregnancy as pre-existing conditions, which thereby enabled insurance companies to kind of charge women with much higher premiums. And, you know, there was a lot of anger surrounding that. So we're reinterpreting old texts in a way which is still unbelievably prescient mm. and what's so great about the tv show is it really does update the book and there are lots of kind of references you know there are references to uber so it feels kind of mm. very modern doesn't it but it also does a very good interesting thing it's not an explicitly feminist text and i think margaret atwood herself has talked about having a complicated relationship with yeah. that word because it does do something that is also very important which is it shows you how oppressed people sort themselves into classes so the aunts for example you know they have decided they've kind of seen which way the wind is blowing and and, and by becoming upholders of this system they purchase a little bit I've got a book here by David Owen called The Fallen Children and that is an update of the Midwich Cuckoos. So this is a bunch of kids living on the Midwich estate, some horrible estate somewhere, but it completely flips it and that is a text about fearing children 
and fearing that you're not going to be able to control children and that the church and the law, you know, and education, they don't care about that. They could burst free of that. Funny enough, the most dystopian things about it are actually the things that are most true, which is about living on a really awful estate. <laughs> it reads like dystopian fiction for a moment and then you come away and think, actually, that is what it it's like. Yeah, so. and I think Black Mirror is very good at that. It just will take a thing that, you know, we all rely on and then just say, what if that became, you know, what if that ruled everybody? The first episode, the one directed by Jay Wright, I forget the name of it in the Netflix version, is, is fascinating about that, about, the, about rating people. And it takes its uncomfortability precisely from the fact that we know that if you have an ethnic minority sounding name, it is harder to get a job interview, right? Because people people are being rated constantly. They're constantly rating each other. But what it does is, it's fascinating, is we don't see that because it's kind of naturalised, right? It's you know, One of the ways that power works is by making itself look immutable. And by transplanting those attitudes into a, a new setting, you can make you can kind of render them strange again. I mean, do you think that is ultimately to come back to this idea of why do we read these books at a time that's hard? Why do you read books about a world that's even harder? I mean, is it to shed light, to, to find some answers? I mean, it's certainly, it doesn't seem like it's it's for comfort. You know, this isn't kind of cosy fiction. It's not cosy, but it is comforting in a strange sort of way. I mean, in really... In a cathartic way. Almost. Yeah, I think it's cathartic. And I think the dystopian fiction, it has to be dystopian against something otherwise it's not dystopian by definition so it has to be a bit worse than something else and the bit worse is where we all are so I mean in one case it can be a warning sign you know it can be comfort to read about children basically fighting each other to death and all this this sort of thing phew thank thank goodness I'm not in that situation but also this idea of a, a thought experiment. Yeah, it does help you also to name and identify the problem, which I yeah. think is really important as well, to say this thing that makes me mildly uneasy, why does it make mm. me une- so uneasy? Mm. Uh, and, and if you push things to its logical conclusion, well, you can actually, that becomes suddenly much more apparent. Yeah, it's the mm. idea that what is happening now contains the seed of something yes. that could be mm. much worse. So last night, John, we went to the Barbican Centre in London to see a show called Into the Unknown, A Journey Through Science Fiction. Yeah, some very space-agey stuff in there. Yeah, quite dystopian, which is how the two parts of the podcast this week connect together. For the interview this week, we have a sculptor called Conrad Shawcross, who makes these very sinister, mechanical, robotic works. One of his sculptures was on show. It's this kind of big moving arm with a light attached to it. It it makes weird, crazy robotic sounds. And we actually thought it was following us around the show. We did at one point, (laughs) because the arm, the arm of this sculpture was sort of pointing towards us, and we were the only people there. It was definitely a slightly strange moment, like... How sentient is this object? Does it know we're here? <laughs> well, yeah, we later realised it actually wasn't. <laughs> no, it, was, it, it wasn't following us. <laughs> it actually wasn't the first time we saw his work. Um, nope. So we went to his home and studio. Very cool sort of converted space. Very East London. Studio on the bottom and his flat where he lives with his family on the top. Yeah, so we saw this kind of sculpture, not fully finished. Lots of assistants are working on it at the time. And what's really cool about his work is kind of how he he's very interested in science and robotics and mechanics, and he kind of incorp- incorporates all of this into his actual sculptures. Yeah, they're sort of highly technical. Um, he has a team of very sophisticated technicians working with him. But something he says in the in the interview is that what he makes kind of serves no actual function. So the sculptures have this very weird presence where they're sort of these very high-tech objects, but 
like what do they do and they have a slightly anthropomorphized kind of quality to them and the sound you're actually hearing now is from the sculpture like the sound of it's actually quite important isn't it and at the barbican it's kind of boomed it's a real out part through lots of, it. of speakers and i think that's what makes it seem like an animal in a way because it has this like growling sound and and it's sort of encased in like a cage almost so you feel like you don't want to get too close to it <laughs> yeah we tried to record it ourselves and it was a disaster so his, yeah. his assistants ended up doing it for us yeah his much more tech savvy assistants recorded the sound so Conrad Shawcross is the youngest member of the Royal Academy. Very prestigious. He's not yet 40. It's pretty unusual. Yeah, you came across this work a while ago, didn't you? Yeah, I first saw it at the National Gallery in 2012. It was something they were doing for the Cultural Olympics. And he'd made this robot, which is actually quite similar to the one at the Barbican, with this arm that points out with a light on the end of it. And it was based on the myth of Diana and Actian, the Titian painting. And he'd, the robot was called Diana. And it was interesting because it was... You know, it's, it's a robot, it's a sculpture, it's made of metal, but there was something very human about its movements and almost quite sort of sexy and seductive, so it was trying to be like Diana. And that was, I think, where lots of people kind of first saw his work and it sort of catapulted him into a, a bit of a larger sphere. I then saw him again, actually, last year in Hong Kong at the Peninsula Hotel. He'd done this thing called the Ada Project, which, again, was a robot with this kind of long arm that with a really light. Cool. Like it was that. really cool, yeah, because they had, um, he had, like, opera singers who were kind of responding to the robot and they were sort of in dialogue together. So it was this very kind of fruitful collaboration between sort of music and mechanics. And as you're about to listen, you'll see that his influences go far above and beyond kind of a typical sculptor's influences perhaps. So here is Comrade Shawcross talking about his diverse influences, the beauty of machines and what art can learn from science. I find machines beautiful. <laughs> Sounds like a confession. Have you ever hung out with machines? Yes. <laughs> I've tried to move away and as much as possible from the Heath Robinson-esque cranky kind of whimsical machines that they're, they're really meant to have this cold stark presence this sort of um, quite sinister presence that feels very purposeful but yet mysterious as to what they are doing in some ways i found it quite problematic to to deal with the idea of sci-fi because the idea of science and fiction to me maybe just the word fiction that I find difficult in that with my work I try and um, pursue the aesthetic of good design and try and create the authority of the machine where we painstakingly design things we put the hat on of the of the rational engineer and the designer and make very technical very beautiful machines that when they are seen by a viewer they are assumed to be real and to be rational and to be functional I want my works to sort of really sit on that liminal edge of, of being plausible. In some ways, the, that kind of context, I've tried to sort of ignore it because what I want these things to be is, is actually real and, and they exist in the real world. They don't just exist on the page or in, on the film. They exist in real life and when you walk around the back of them, they're not fake. They are real mechanical objects that perform functions, but they may be misguided, they may be illogical and they may, be, they may force the viewer into more philosophical pathways but they nonetheless exist as real objects and so there's nothing fictional about them.
I think we're all troubled by technology. We all are dependent on technology and there is this uneasy kind of marriage between humanity and the racing, surging progress of technology. When I was a child, my parents used to talk about the sort of superiority and of man's intelligence and mankind's intelligence and and how the miracle of how fast we could process and learn language and learn to walk and to talk and to write and to read. But actually, now that I'm a father of myself, my son is three and he is a miracle and I adore every single moment of his evolution. But in the back of my head, I am terrified at the knowledge now that machines are able to process and learn to walk or to and robots are able to be assembled and put together and immediately walk and the knowledge can be passed down just by transferring data immediately across. I take on the, um, the aesthetic of the machine. I think we are more and more immersed into old technology. I mean, it's just from my own children. It's just, it's sort of scary to see just how much technology is around them and how, how much they're allured to it. A lot of the great science fiction works that were created in the past are, are sort of all coming true. And a lot of them are just very prophetic and very um, accurate in terms of what the sort of future holds or what the present now has become. I suppose one of the consistent tricks of my sculptures is that we make machines employing all of those rational processes of good design and engineering and meticulous attention sort of to detail and evolve them to perform a certain function. But at the end of the day, they don't actually have a product. And so they're, a pro they're a sort of productless, barren machines, if you like, that appear to be real, but actually they are they're problematic because they have this powerful presence of function, but yet they do not perform any useful function. It's a sort of visual riddle. There's a really good example of a mechanical machine that was never realised and never understood. This was in the Victorian times, and it was a, a man called Charles Babbage tried to build this machine his, throughout his whole life, but never succeeded. And he developed it all on paper in these meticulous drawings, and he was aided by Ada Lovelace, who was his sort of assistant, and also a, a very um, gifted mathematician. And they tried to build this machine, but it was what was so um, controversial about this machine, it was essentially a mechanical calculator. The Victorian Revolution was well, well under, underway, and there was... There was a frenetic activity up north and in London and the salons were awash with invention and, and mechanical in, ingenuity. But this machine didn't have a product, so it wasn't, it wasn't making rivets, it wasn't making soles of shoes, it wasn't doing... It didn't have anything that was coming out the other end and people thought that was kind of laughable and he was kind of treated as a bit of a laughing stock. With Ada and, and Babbage, there's just something very, very romantic about the loneliness of their endeavour. The tragedy of being ahead of your time, it sort of almost sort of um, sentences you to a life of, of loneliness and lack of understanding. And there's something truly kind of, sort of tragic and unbelievable about the fact that they were at this moment in history where if they'd been taken seriously, the computer age would have started 100 years before it did.
I grew up in London. I grew up in Kentish Town. I, uh, my both my parents are writers, and I sort of was always surrounded by kind of artistic conversation. And my stepfather's a painter, and I, I mean, I grew up in a very kind of nice sort of middle class environment, going to lots of plays and museums, and so it was very, um, very nice upbringing in in North London. My reference points are quite kind of high in that my mother and my father are all kind of professional writers and, and do a lot of research. And so I'm quite aware of the extent and the level of, of that sort of dedication and the amount of research that goes in. And I can't claim to be an academic on that level. I, I'm interested in ideas and I read about su- certain subjects, which when I need to with Ada and with the Ada Project, but I'm not... Um, I don't spend eight hours in the library sort of cross-referencing things and writing papers or theses on things. I'm really very much, much more sort of hands-on and making things. When I learned to drive, when I was 18 years old, I became very preoccupied by how my car worked and I had this very unreliable Leyland Sherpa camper van because it was the only thing I could afford and the head gasket kept on blowing and I would have to change the head gasket and take the engine apart so I had my Haynes manual. I loved the words, the language of the machine, all the the names for things like gasket, crankshaft, camshaft, uh, spur, pinion, governor, all the names that were given to Pacific gears that had these sort of identities and it almost went, felt like this sort of schizophrenic language for projecting character, human characteristics onto inanimate objects. It was kind of amazing, kind of rich language that came out of this sort of Victorian era where all of these objects and it's a little bit like the internet now we've got names for the internet or the cloud and there's sort of these amazing kind of words that come out of of the kind of bleeding edge of science so I learned to take the car apart I learned about mechanics through that and so I was very glad I didn't have a VW because if I'd had a VW I never would have had to take it apart and so it was good that I had a flawed British engine car so that was um that was my learning curve of how to learn to about mechanics I don't think I'm particularly strict in my private life or my personal life I live above my studio with my family I think one of the one of the sort of good things about if you are a control freak is that if you have children you just can't you they they are actually in control so there's not really much point trying to to have a private life or because they're just basically run run rings around you I think if I was to do an art that was just my own process, I would go back to making pottery. When I was a teenager, I, that's some of the happiest sort of times I spent were sort of doing these four-hour pottery classes at Camden Art Centre, which was old um, polytechnic that just did weekend classes and things. It was really wonderful, and I just made very kind of unusual sort of shapes and just gave them to my family. But I was very, I loved that sort of the menial process of kneading the clay and making the form and putting in the kiln it was just one one person doing it it was very um very very um rewarding Into the Unknown, A Journey Through Science Fiction is an exhibition at the Barbican and it runs until the 1st of September. That's all for this week. Next week, we're going to be talking to Patricia Lockwood, the controversial poet laureate of Twitter and author of the memoir Priestaddy about growing up in the American Midwest. 
And we'll also be discussing why this is the year of queer art. Please check out our back catalogue. We've interviewed Jude Law, Will Self, Deliciously Ella, Kate Tempest and many, many more. And we've covered everything from when fake news is funny to whether private members clubs can ever be cool. I think they can. Griselda thinks they can't. <laughs> um, everything else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been John Sonia and Griselda Murray-Brown and our music is composed and produced by Fatim. Fatim.